at a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions. We need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a mindful moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Ah, so if the specific doesn't offer an insight that is extrapola, how do you say that word? That is extrapola. Yeah, I'm going to take that again. Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 154. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I have so enjoyed meeting you while I've been on book tour for my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life, this fall. I've met so many podcast listeners, blog readers, and book club members. I'd like to tell you a little about those book clubbers. Some of them didn't have readers in their communities who loved reading as much as they did. So they joined our online book club as an outlet for all that book talk they've been holding inside. One Houston reader told me the book club is the best 10 bucks she spends every month because it guarantees she gets her enjoyable adult intellectual time in on the regular. It's her sanity saving self-care. In book club, we of course read and discuss one book together each month. And we also chat about things like our favorite local indie bookstores, hot topics like the great American read, audiobooks we couldn't stop listening to, what our kids might enjoy reading next. And of course we share what we are reading and planning on reading next. In addition to those forums, we meet every month to chat online about that month's book, and frequently the author joins us for these discussions. In October, we're reading the wonderful book, Tell Me More by Kelly Corrigan, and she is stopping by on October 23rd to tell us more about her book. Our book clubbers also really love our classes, the ones I teach regularly in book club. You may have seen these in the MMD shop as standalone items, but book club members get all of the classes and are frequently the first to test drive the new material I create. You can join book club anytime, but I hope you'll specifically give it a try this month when we're talking with Kelly Corrigan. I love Tell Me More and cannot wait to dive in deep. Go to members.modernmrsdarcy.com to learn more about all the book club entails and to sign up there. That's members.modernmrsdarcy.com or the book club link at the top of the podcast site. I hope to see you in the forums and in real life while I'm still on book tour. Today, Ruth Ann Deveni and I dig into the world of special interest reading and how her passion for victim advocacy brought powerful literature into her life that she wouldn't have discovered otherwise. We're talking sensitive reader self-care, books that would be much better as the 10-minute TED Talks that inspired them, how books are like spicy food, and much, much more. I'm excited to share this episode with Ruth Ann, but before we dive in, you should be aware that today's episode contains some conversation about human trafficking and physical abuse. If you know these topics are triggering for you, please take care of yourself by listening with caution or simply setting this episode aside and tuning in next week. Readers, are you ready? Take a deep breath and let's get to it. Ruth Ann, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And one of the great things about podcasting is I get to talk to readers voice to voice that I previously have only known. You know, Instagram is a likely culprit or from the shelves of the bookstore or from, you know, websites and blogs. I know your personal Instagram accounts and I just put together this morning that you are the same Ruthann Deveni that I know from Diverse Books Club. How do you say your Instagram handle? Because... It's the kind of thing that you only have to read. You never have to say out loud until you're talking on a podcast. Yes, my handle is definitely RA and it's a holdover from when I had a blog back in the day and I've been called RA as a nickname for 20 years now. How did that catch on? I'm not really sure because people say it's shorter, but it's obviously not, (laughs) but people definitely say it out loud. So I don't really know. It happened in high school and it stuck all through college. And I have some colleagues who call me rad. Oh, that's fun. I think, yeah, exactly. It's kind of fun. What do you do at this place where they call you rad? Oh, well, I work in the financial industry in learning and development. So I work with our employees to create learning opportunities and provide resources for them. I understand all those words, but at your job this week, what are, what are you actually doing? This week, I am working with one of the teams specifically for programming for them. So they created the content for their subject matter experts, and I did a lot of project management and coordination and advised them on how to structure it, like how long should the sessions be and what materials would be helpful before, during, and after, things like that. And I'll help them gather feedback see what lessons we learned, give all of that back to the instructors. In my previous life, I was a medical writer in the pharmaceutical field. I know it sounds completely different than what I do now, but I think the common tie is that I am used to boiling down complicated things and explaining them to different audiences as needed, and also setting things in time, putting things in order and seeing what makes sense to do when, or if we have limited time or budget, what decisions we have to make. That's really interesting that you can boil those diverse roles down into like two specific concrete things, especially the complicated becoming simple. I'm very curious to see if we're going to hear that in your books. Mm -hmm. Is this something you've thought about? It is. Okay. Super curious. We'll get there. In the meantime, I've noticed that you often talk about the business books you read for work. Is there a book club at the office? Yes. And I run it. (laughs) (laughs) Is that why there's a book club at the office? I didn't start the book club, but when I joined the company, it was just started. And I realized that there was good energy behind it, but not a lot of process, I guess. So people had great intentions, but you know, things go by the wayside when you don't have goals to meet or anything like that. So I went to the organizer and I said, do you think you'd be okay if we shot for every other month meeting? Is that okay? And the organizer was like, definitely, we can do that. And so now it's become my baby. (laughs) And yet business books are not like your precious darlings, right? Oh, no, no. I actually struggle to read them. I wish I liked them because I have to read them a lot for my job. Do you choose the books or do you just oversee the book club? I do the organizing. So my preference actually is that I don't have a lot of a say in the book selection. I want it to be kind of of the people. So my method is to find a facilitator. And then I sort of coach the facilitator to say, what are you interested in? Is there something that you want to discuss or a really good book that you've read lately? Because I think that is the most important thing. 
for the facilitator to be excited about it. In the past, sometimes we've had polls where people vote on what book they want to read, but then sometimes the facilitator feels like saddled with a book that they don't really love. We have our next meeting coming up in October soon, and we're reading a fascinating book. I haven't started it yet, but it's called What Works? Gender Equality by Design. And it's by a Harvard researcher named Iris Bonet. My understanding is that she uses a design approach to create gender equality and lessen unconscious bias in the workplace. That sounds really fascinating. Like I said, I haven't read it, so yeah, I don't and know. And you sound excited about it, but these books yeah. often don't work out so well for you. Why do you think that is? Often I think they're just too long. Oh my gosh. I was talking about this with a friend this morning about padded nonfiction. Tell me more. Yeah. When I see a business book or even a social psychology book or something like that, that's over 300 pages, I kind of don't believe it. I don't think there's enough content to fill those pages. And because I read so many books like this, I feel like I could have a bingo card next to me for all of them. If it's a book about productivity or about team dynamics or something like that, I think, all right, when am I going to read about flow? And when am I going to read about deliberate practice? And there are just all these concepts that I think repeat Mm -hmm. in these books. So I just start to glaze over after a while. Really, what I want is a very salient article. I can skim and pull out, you know, the bolded headings and get the takeaways for my life or my work. Right. And so many business books had their original roots in a long form piece in the Atlantic or a TED talk. And many times, really, that's all you needed. And I don't blame them for writing a book. But for me, and I love to read and I'm a very fast reader. It doesn't seem like a great use of my reading hours, Um, especially when I feel like I personally don't get a lot new out of those books. So I try to be choosy um, or just read an article. But when it comes to the book club books, I do read them. (laughs) Have there been any exceptions in the businessy kind of genre you read for work that have really stood out to you? Yeah, actually, this year we read Essentialism. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fascinating. I thought the book was very well put together and concise, and I could immediately see ways of applying the concepts So I think that's the key for me. If I can't see a way to apply, if it's very theoretical or seems very specific to an industry or like a size of company or something like that, it doesn't have as much resonance for me. But essentialism, I felt, was more about a philosophy. It's an approach to life and work. Mm -hmm. And I still come back to it. In fiction, I tend to think that the universal is found in the very specific. And I think it's really interesting. I want to think about if that can be true in business books or not so much. You probably read more of these than I do these days. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think there's definitely a balance because specific examples help bring the concepts to light. So I don't think that it's helpful to speak only in generalities. However, if I can't figure out a way to apply it, I don't know why I'm reading the book. Ah, so if the specific doesn't offer an insight that you can extrapolate into another field or another area of your life, then what's the point I hear you saying? Yeah, Yeah. well, and I think that my approach to business books is very utilitarian. I wanna get something out of it. I wanna learn something I hadn't before. I see it very much in the context of my work Mm -hmm. um, because I don't read them out of pure enjoyment. Let's talk about what you read on your own time. What are you drawn to? I like to go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. Mm -hmm. Um, For fiction, I like literary fiction and classics, mostly books for adults, but I also read middle grade and young adult too. I don't like anything remotely scary. And I have found that same with spiciness. Someone's it's not that bad is 
I'm on fire. So if someone says, oh, it's not that scary, usually I'm like having nightmares. You're a highly sensitive person, aren't you? I am, which I learned from your book. Oh, that's great. (laughs) I was like, oh my gosh, she's talking about me. I get asked a lot, okay, if I picked up reading people and I just want to change my life in the next 15 minutes, where do I start? And the answer is chapter five with highly sensitive people because you can just read it and see yourself in those pages or someone you know and love. Uh, Sometimes I think a high sensitivity, depending on how it is, doesn't necessarily mean that you may or may not feel comfortable with uh, certain kinds of books, but sometimes it really does. What do you think's going on? For me, I think my sensitivity is a lot with sound. I'm much more affected by movies or television. Like if I feel afraid, I immediately cover my ears, not my eyes. So books don't affect me as much. Audio is different. I have to be careful about audio. But if I'm reading it on the page, I find that I can, you know, drift my eye to the next paragraph or Mm -hmm. something like that. If Mm -hmm. I feel like, oh, something's happening that I'm not great with. And I think I've gotten more sensitive over the years. So there are some books I read in the past that I can't imagine reading again, like The Road. I don't think I could read that again. Yeah. Have you changed? Has the culture changed? I think I've changed. I'm not sure how, but I think that more life experience and being exposed to more things in the world has made me more empathetic toward other situations. And I'm not as able to put a bright line in the sand of like, this is fiction and then this is my life. Mm -hmm. So I think that has changed for me, but I do still have to be careful with books. I definitely look for trigger warnings. I think I do have a pretty strong stomach, all things considered, but I have to be careful. I do like what I hear you saying is that experience on and off the page has made you more sensitive and not less so, which is something that we often hear about other forms of media. Yes. Yes. In terms of nonfiction, I love memoirs. I don't know if this is the right word, but basically like long form journalism. So if a journalist writes a book, I'm probably going to like it. That's funny. That's what I was talking about this morning with my reading friend. (laughs) She was saying how she'd rather watch the TED Talk than read the book, but the exception is journalists like Michael Pollan, who by the nature of their work, dig deep and follow the trail to the end. Yeah, I find that to be similar too. And I was a horrible history student and I still do not take in history very well. Fascinating history is like the only way that I will learn history. So I really appreciate it when I can find books like that. I usually find myself saying, why didn't I ever learn this? And I I might have, but I just have no recollection from my school days. So it really has to come alive to draw you in. Yes. And I appreciate stories about people and the dynamics between people and where they live and the time they're in. But I also really appreciate having context. So what was going on in other parts of the world or Mm -hmm. what was the economy like? Things like that. I'm a big fan of cross-referencing. However, I do find footnotes distracting because I then need to read them all. (laughs) I relate to that. Well, Ruthann, I can't wait to hear how those universal themes become very specific in the books you chose. Are you ready to dive in? Yes, I am. Okay. You know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and we will talk about what you should read next. Let's start with your favorites. Tell me about a book you love. The first book I chose is The Locust Effect by Gary Haugen. This is a nonfiction book, and I read it last year for the first time. It is about the relationship between poverty and how the most poor in our world are living under a threat of violence all the time. So it's about the importance of justice systems 
when we might think about other things like medical aid or education, which are, of course, very important. But this book really changed my mindset when we think about alleviating poverty. What drew you to this book? Well, I have been learning about the issue of human trafficking and modern slavery for about the past five years or so. And Gary Haugen is a big advocate and nonprofit founder in that space. So that's why I found this book initially. And I'm also the type of reader who likes to learn a lot about the thing that I am interested in. So I'll usually read a bunch of books in a streak on a certain topic. Mm-hmm. This book came up on a lot of lists, and I think that it is especially good for me because there are great stats and um, context for the issue of poverty and human trafficking, Um, and that really appeals to the technical writer in me, and also such powerful case studies about individuals who have overcome being a victim of human trafficking and also what the conditions were that led to their victimization. What sparked your interest in reading about human trafficking? About five years ago, I learned about an organization called Dressember, which raises funds for anti-trafficking organizations. Um, So I became involved with Dressember and was just motivated to learn more and more. I wish I had read The Locust Effect earlier, but I think that it has really been a milestone for me in terms of putting the issue of human trafficking in a larger global context. There are conditions that encourage modern slavery to persist and that they're all connected. So it's not simply that poor people in a poor country, it's that human trafficking and modern slavery are disproportionately profitable for the people who perpetrate those crimes and they're exploiting the poorest people who are so desperate for any kind of chance at feeding their families. Mm -hmm. And then because the economic balance is so skewed, that affects policy decisions and whether the local government is incentivized to help the perpetrator or help the victim. So that means that there might be a corrupt government. And then that will affect whether there are schools or other services available to citizens. So reading this book really helped me see that there are so many other factors and that poverty is a complex problem. There's no silver bullet, I think, That's pretty clear in other literature as well. But it was really powerful for me to see that this physical threat of safety in that the poor do not have reliable police to come to their aid, that is the number one thing that makes the poor vulnerable. And I did not know that. So it sounds like you first have to understand the nature of the problem before you can even begin to do anything about it. And that's what these books are helping you do is to understand. I think so. And it's difficult because the stats are really overwhelming. That's a really hard part about this book. 40 million people are in slavery and this is their annual income. And a huge percentage of them are women or under 18, things like that. That's really hard. And even though I have a mind for stats, it doesn't protect me from feeling very overwhelmed. But the stories in this book, people overcoming adversity and when interventions work to create good legal process in order to help the community, that's so encouraging to me to see like, yes, there's a way that it can be better. Okay. How can we get behind that? We're going to talk about that a little more, but first tell me about another book you love. Okay. The second book I chose is called Refugee by Alan Gratz. Mm -hmm. This is a middle grade novel. So I think grade five to eight or so. It's a fiction book about three different kids who all have to flee their home country. And 
they're all in different times throughout history. So there is a Jewish boy in the 1930s who's fleeing Germany, um, a Cuban girl who's in the 90s, and a boy who is leaving Syria in 2015. All of their stories are fairly dramatic. The plot moves very quickly, great for younger readers, and it goes back and forth between each child. So at the end of each chapter, you're kind of left hanging, and then it pulls you into a different country. Yeah. But I really love this book because it shows the commonalities between all these children, Mm -hmm. between different geographies and times in history. I also really appreciated that there was a modern example of a refugee and what that journey is like. And there are differences, of course, between them. But I think this book is great for kids, certainly, and also adults, just to be thought-provoking and have these images in mind of children and what their families have gone through throughout time. Now, you said that you alternated between fiction and non, and now we have a middle grade book. How often do you read middle grade or maybe YA? I probably read more middle grade than YA. I look for really strong titles, so they need to have a very strong recommendation for me. I also really love middle grade on audio. Why do you think that is? Why is middle grade so good on audio? I think that the readers are great because they're intended to be heard by children. They are very animated and captivating. I love authors like Kate DiCamillo on Mm -hmm. audio. I think her books are great. Mm -hmm. And I like to listen to books on audio that I'm pretty sure I won't need to take notes on. Middle grade fiction is usually a safe bet for that. (laughs) You can just enjoy the story. Exactly, while I'm walking the dog or whatever. This one I read in print. And I just think it would be great for adults and kids to talk about, you know, who they're related to or what surprised them. And there is a great section of like more resources. If there's anything that strikes interest, you can immediately dive into those other things. And we know you like to do that. Exactly. I'm a cross-referencer. Ruth Ann, what's another book you have really enjoyed? So my third book is called Impounded, a collection of photographs by Dorothea Lang. And the photos are of the Japanese internment in the 1940s during World War II. So I heard about this book last year. I had read a few articles about how it was the 75th anniversary of the executive order that prompted the Japanese internment. And I realized that I didn't really know anything about that part of history. And I probably learned something about it in high school, but nothing of substance. So my library happened to have a copy of this collection and I borrowed it. It starts off with actually about almost 100 pages, a few essays, and I'm sure they're wonderful, but I skipped right to the photos. They are black and white and very beautiful and stark. I just found the whole experience to be incredibly powerful. There are a lot of children, very well-dressed men and women. It was a different time, so everyone dressed up all the time. Seeing the images of the internment and where they lived, what it was like to get there, the trains and the centers where they had to leave all their belongings, it really brought it to life for me in a way that was probably more powerful than reading it off a page. It made me ashamed that I didn't know more, but I feel like better late than never. The book is incredibly beautiful and poignant. I really relate to that. I am embarrassed to say that I didn't know about that myself until I read a novel. And that sent me to Google to say, like, I don't I don't think he's making this up, but how do mm-hmm. I not know about this? And it was Jamie Ford's Hotel on the mm-hmm. Corner of Bitter and Sweet set in Puyallup, Washington. Oh, it was just so sad. I had no idea. But then once you know, you start seeing it in the histories, like Japanese internment is discussed at length in Eleanor Roosevelt histories, for example, because she was Mm -hmm. vehemently opposed to FDR's order 
And it's so, oh, I mean, it's so heartbreaking and it's difficult now to look back and watch these decisions unfold where you know how they end up and you know how horrible it is. And oh, I'm with you there. Yes. And I think there are two other things about the book that really struck me. One is that there are photos of the racist propaganda of the time. Oh, I'm an Asian American, I'm not Japanese, but still it's very poignant to see that there are these posters on the sides of stores, you know, about how people were not wanted. They should go home. Were you expecting that when you opened the book? Did you expect to react that way? No. I mean, I looked at it not purely as an informational thing, but again, I'm grateful for the context. So it's not simply an event that happened. It's that there was so much fear and propaganda. So that was surprising, but I'm glad, you know, it was good for me to see that. And then also just the title, Impounded, is really powerful. I think that it refers to the internment process and that decision, but also the photos themselves were censored. Dorothea Lang was hired by the government to take these photos, but then when the government got them back, they basically felt like they were too incriminating. Really? Isn't that amazing? Oh, wow. Very few were published just to say like, we did it and we documented it, but hundreds of them were impounded for decades. That sounds like a really powerful reading experience. I'm so sorry. I hear what you're saying about it being good for you, but I still so regret that that this is our history. Yeah. And her photos are just so, they're so haunting and Mm -hmm. atmospheric and, uh, you know, the black and white is so powerful. I haven't seen this book, but I've seen some of her work and... I mean, I don't know enough about photography to be able to articulate why it's so moving, but I recognize that it moves me. (sighs) I noticed that one of the reviews used the word unflinching. And I think maybe the reason it is so powerful has to do with that because, you know, it hurts to look, so we'd want to look away, but she's captured it in this photograph that you can't stop scanning for the details. I'm really intrigued to pick that up. And I love that that's such an offbeat choice, it sounds like, for your own reading life. And then uh, we don't have a lot of photography books on which I read next. So thank you for bringing that to the table. I feel a little sheepish because I didn't actually read the front matter. (laughs) (laughs) There was one episode early on where I recommended two books in a TED Talk. So I think you can bring a bound volume of photographs into the discussion here. Yeah, yeah, we're all good. Left turn. Tell me about a book that wasn't for you. Um, Recently, I read or I listened to Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to learn about South Africa. I ended up reading a few books set in South Africa. One of them that came up on the list was What We Lose by Zinzi Clemens. And I did not like it. I listened to it on audio and I I just think maybe that's not the right format. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it goes back and forth in time a lot. And because it's, you know, the same narrator, it's hard to be oriented to what's happening. How old is she? Where is she located? I was hoping to get a kind of modern or today's view of South Africa, what it's like to have South African heritage today. And I think I did get some of it, but I was so disoriented throughout that it was a difficult reading experience. I did have moments where I felt like, oh, the writing is so good. There were these crystallizing, clear, beautifully worded sentences. Mm -hmm. But again, I think they were lost on me because of audio. Mm -hmm. I couldn't go back and enjoy them. I can see how her pro, well, this is going to sound so pretentious, but her pro style is very inventive. And I can see how maybe that would look better on the page than it sounds to the ear. And also that's not a style of writing that appeals to everyone. So I would Mm -hmm. be very interested in hearing if audio did make the difference or if you read it on the page or like, you know what, 
just, no, it wasn't for me. Right. That's possible. But now I can't, you know, rewind. I know. I know. I wish I could. Because readers ask all the time, like, well, what if I read it on the page first before I heard the audiobook? I'm like, well, I can guess, but I have no idea because you can't unhear. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I would imagine that's one of the reasons you're careful with your HSP sensibilities is once you hear it, you cannot unhear. Although right. it doesn't sound like that was the issue here. It wasn't the issue here, but that has come up sometimes with audio. I can't fast forward. I don't know how long something's going to last. Oh, I totally fast forward and hope for the best. Yeah, I might have to do that. And I wouldn't say that I hated this book. I found it disappointing, maybe an unfortunate format choice for me. What are you reading now, Ruthann? Right now I am reading well, several books at once. I always do that basically by format. My nonfiction book right now is Overdressed by Elizabeth L. Klein. Yes. This was everywhere like five years ago. Yeah, I missed it. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that we're still reading it and talking about it now. Tell us more. I am not very far into it, but it's about fast fashion and how it has changed the clothing industry and created not great buying and consuming habits, especially in America. Yes. Okay. Tell us what fast fashion is, what that oh, means. Fast fashion. Yeah. So it's stores like Forever 21 or Charlotte Russe or H&M. Basically, if you can buy a t-shirt for eight bucks. It's fast fashion. She's talking about you. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so these manufacturers have super fast design and manufacturing cycles so that they can always be on trend and sell things at a very low rate. But I'm learning that the manufacturing processes are not good and can often rely on a workforce that either works in bad conditions or they're paid very poorly or they're very young or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to learn more and be more diligent about knowing where my clothing comes from. And so this book was recommended to sort of study up on that. I'm excited to learn more kind of though, because I think it will change my habits So there's a part of me that knows, well, if I don't read this book, then I can be willfully (laughs) ignorant about going to Old Navy and buying a dozen of something and then bragging about it. Because once you know, you can't unknow. Exactly. So I know that's going to happen. But so far, it's very good. And I imagine that I will have, it'll have a convicting effect on me. I will stay tuned on Instagram. What else are you reading now? I just started Run by Ann Patchett Mm -hmm. on Kindle. And I like her, so I am excited to keep reading that. And I'm almost done with Ghost at a Watchman on audio. That's Reese Witherspoon, right? Yes, that's why I picked it on okay. audio. I had a copy for years and not picked it up. But then when I noticed it was Reese Witherspoon, I thought, I think this is the right way to do this. Yeah, people have strong feelings about Ghost at a Watchman. Yes. Which I totally understand. <laughs> Absolutely. How's it going for you? I like it. I think the uh, performance is very good, and I'm glad I'm going with audio. But... I will say I have no strong attachment to To Kill a Mockingbird. I read it for the first time as an adult, and I don't think that's the right way to do that. I have almost no memory of that book. So almost like two completely different books to me. If you renamed all the characters and Ghost of a Watchman, I think it would have the same effect. Ooh, that's a really good point. So I like it, I think, so far. Okay. If my inbox and blog comments are any indication, not having a strong attachment to the original, unless you want to consider Watchmen the original. I don't know. It depends on Uh, how you want to talk about that. Right. That will keep you from needing your smelling salts. I think these would be so, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been in English literature class, but I think this would be a fun course to read these two. For sure. I appreciate people's attachment to To Kill a Mockingbird. I just think I 
came to it at the wrong time of my life. So it didn't make a strong impression on me. And so now as I'm listening to Ghost at a Watchman, I don't have those attachments. Like I'm not really making any comparisons. And Reese is reading it to you. So it's just totally different. Yes. Is there anything you want to be different in your reading life now? The biggest thing is that I wish I liked reading business books. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed you said earlier that you don't get to choose your own business books. Right. It's a fine line because I'm all about self-improvement books, things that prompt self-reflection, things like that. I'll pick those up all the time. However, once it's in a business context, it's just really hard for me to get through it. Is that because it's work? Maybe. Is it actually assigned reading? I'm just wondering if you approach it differently, like with a different part of your brain or a different part of your to-do list, and that just makes it feel like a drag. Not necessarily. It's assigned in that I have a deadline and I'm going to talk to other people about it, but I'm assigning it to myself. I think in other situations where I have similar parameters, like with the Diverse Books Club, for example, I do a ton of reading and previewing. And that's similar where, you know, there's a topic and I have to read these three books about this thing by a certain time. And I don't feel the same reticence. I think with business books, I just feel like there aren't that many new ideas and how can there be so many books? So the thought of getting a dud is very irritating to me in that context. (laughs) So yes, I wish I liked reading business books more because it would help me professionally, but also there are just so many. It would be nice if that were an enjoyable part of my reading life. And it would also be nice if I had a better tolerance, I think, for I'll say things that are scary, but they're scary to me. So there are things that I just don't or can't read because I know I'm going to have nightmares the next day or for the week. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I'm fine. I'm secure to say that's not for me. It's fine. I'm choosing for my own sanity and sleep to not go there. But I kind of wish I knew what the big deal was sometimes. Mm -hmm. But that's more about how I want to be well-rounded and things like that. In general, I think that's fine. All right, Ruthann, let's talk about your books. So we have The Locust Effect by Gary Haugen, well-researched, I would say it's fair to call this passionate nonfiction. Yes. Uh, Taking an amorphous, oh, this is bad and huge, what can we possibly do about it issue and untangling it a bit. Is that a good way to put that? I think so. He has so much experience in the area that he has a lot of credibility And the content is laid out in a way that I think the reader goes on this logical journey with Gary Haugen, with the emotional resonance of these true life stories. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that is a fair way of characterizing that. Okay. Refugee by Alan Gratz, middle grade set in different places and times. Uh, I think another thing that takes an issue and makes you feel it by putting it into, um, you know, a story instead of data and then impounded. I don't even know how to describe that. So really haunting and heartbreaking photographs about a time in history that you're really able to connect to across time because you could literally see history on the page. Mm -hmm. As I think about it, they're all really human stories. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're universal. Like I hope they're not universal, but all of these books have been powerful to me because they made me recognize I'm a person These are people, their lives are affected by these circumstances. And it's important to see our shared humanity, really, that we're all connected. And even if they felt very different from me, that there Mm -hmm. are areas of common ground. When you're shown people experiencing that issue and what it looks like in their life, that changes things. 
And that's something that I think we both really love about good books. Mm-hmm. Okay. So not for you was the Zinzi Clemens. I know you do read literary fiction, but this one was either whether it was the format or the style just didn't do it for you. Right. And then you want to like your business books. I'm sorry to say that I wish you well. I'm cheering yes. you on. We are not going to focus on that next. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we could like shoehorn this into a businessy kind of category. I'm going to circle something with my pencil. We'll see. Throughout our conversation, I was thinking about how you'd said that human trafficking and modern slavery was a cause that you are personally invested in fighting and how reading has really gone hand in hand with your burgeoning advocacy. So I've been trying to think of books that address this issue, not necessarily head on directly, but um, that incorporate it as an element. And Ruthann, it's really hard. And I know you know why. And it's because I have this big list of books I've been jotting down. And so many of them are really, really tough reads. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would never recommend you do this on audio. Mm-hmm. Many of these, I imagine that this is something that you've discovered over and over again. It's not hard to find a lot of books on this subject, but they're just so hard to read. Yes. And generally I'm game. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the reality of wading into difficult subjects too, not just thinking about human trafficking. So I think in general, readers have to be smart about that and not, I don't know, take on more than is wise. But I am game. <laughs> I'll say that. I guess also I think that human trafficking and modern slavery are, are a topic that I've read a lot about. So I think I have some good like muscle built up. Okay. That's a good way to put it. I also know that you have a challenge coming up later this winter. So this is a topic that I want to try to wade into literarily. And we will talk about that before we're done here. I'm just stalling because I'm nervous. Surely you've read Half the Sky. Yes. Okay. For any reader who's listening and thinks, I want to know more about what is happening in the world and what I can do in my small way to change it, definitely pick up Half the Sky. Uh, The subtitle is Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide. It's by Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun. The title comes from an old proverb saying that women hold up half the sky. When we talk about trafficking, we're talking about predominantly females. Females are the ones who don't have access to education. Females are more likely to be in poverty. And this issue outlines what it really does is it makes the complicated simple and says... These are some of the important factors, and the book ends with four concrete steps you can take in the next 10 minutes to make a difference. And it's not like an airy, like, oh, you'll just feel better and pat yourself on the shoulder, Mm -hmm. like the small things that really do change the world we live in. And there's a follow-up book called A Path Appears, which is also quite good and highly recommended reading. And again, it's, it's talking about poverty and modern slavery and sex trafficking. So it can be hard to read in places, but it is nonfiction and it's very easy to move on if that's what you uh, require right now. Yes, I definitely recommend this book. I read this maybe at least five years ago, something like that. I will say it did give me nightmares. I totally believe that. I would find myself with my fists clenched as I was reading, because it was so hard, I will say, to encourage people to read it, the sections are fairly short, unless you're, you know, on a library deadline. (laughs) You could could read a section and then take a break (laughs) and watch, I don't know, a comedy on Netflix or something. (laughs) All right. With that out of the way, we're going to start gentle and work our way up. How does that sound? 
Sounds good. The first book I have in mind for you is Middle Grade. Sometimes I see it categorized as YA. I don't think I would, though. I think it's Middle Grade. It's by Joan Bauer. It's called Tell Me. Do you know her or any of her work? No. This is really interesting, Ruthann. The ratings in reader reviews are drastically different on the print and audio versions. And you like to read on audio. And I think this is going to be okay And I say that cautiously, but I think this is going to be okay for you to read on audio because the protagonist is 12. And what happens is we have a girl who's a little bit of an outsider because something's going on with her family at home. So she comes to stay with her grandmother in a different town. And there's some like small town kind of stuff. Like there's some kind of flower festival or something going on and there are floats and bands and people are preparing for that. So there's, you know, fun tween girl stuff going on. What happens in the course of the story is this girl starts paying attention to her new surroundings and she starts to think a relationship she's observing in this community just doesn't seem right to her. It feels off. Um, There's a girl about her age. She's living with this couple. I think they're living in a van or something. And she's like, I don't know what's going on, but I think this is weird. And she's been told, as so many of us are, like, if you're concerned about something, you should speak up. And she does. And she's kind of blown off, but she's concerned enough that she keeps pushing. And what I like about this book is it addresses an issue you care about in a way that's very gentle. I don't know if Bauer wrote this specifically with this in mind, but a reader who shares the protagonist's age could read this and could learn about this issue without being like, holy cow, this is totally overwhelming. What a horrible world. Like I need to shower this off of me, but I can't. So I can't unread Mm -hmm. it now as much as you can do in a book that addresses the topic of human trafficking. Some readers think it's a little contrived, but I think it's middle grade. The narration Mm -hmm. is great. I'm hopeful. How does this sound? This sounds really good. And I love finding recommendations on this topic for younger readers. Because it's so hard. It's very difficult, yes. And of course, there are questions about, you know, what's appropriate and um, what can kids handle? And I think it varies. But the reality is that so many victims of human trafficking are young girls. So I think it's important as much as is possible for teen girls to be informed, I think, and to have empathy for the victims of these crimes. So I also think that it's a good way for adults to get into this content, too. Because as you said, so many of the books are really difficult. And Mm -hmm. is that something you really want to get into sometimes? Not really. This is brand new to me. Happy to hear it. The next book I have in mind is by Emily St. John Mandel. I read and really loved Station Eleven. I don't know if you've read that one. Yes, I also love that one. Do you did you like her style? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. I, I felt like I could pivot over from Anne Patchett in knowing your other taste and feel that we were moving in a direction likely to be hospitable. Have you read The Singer's Gun? The Singer's Gun. I haven't read this. I've been working my way back through her uh, catalog while I'm waiting for her next book to come out next year. It still doesn't have a publication date and I am checking regularly because I really want to read (laughs) a new book by her. But when I picked this one up, I hate to say this, but we're talking about it in the context of human trafficking. So the book is not about human trafficking, except it revolves around human trafficking. What I mean by that is our protagonist is a guy who grew up in a family that um, is in a dirty business. His 
parents sell driver's licenses and passports and social security cards, uh, obviously illegally to people who cannot obtain them through the usual legal means. But then they discover that as profitable as that is, if you trade in people and not paper, you can make even more money. Mm-hmm. He doesn't realize the extent of how dirty the family business has gotten until he signs up for one last job. He feels like he needs to do it or his cousin, also in the business, is going to blackmail him and tell his fiance everything about his past. What I like about it is it addresses serious topics, but it's not at all graphic and it doesn't dwell on the trafficking, but at a certain point when you realize what is going on, it just becomes ever, it just kind of hangs over the reader the same way it's hanging over this guy who does not want any part of it. It's a very gentle mystery, well-crafted, well-plotted. And something else that I like about it is it shows the creepingness of crimes that hurt people. Mm-hmm. How nobody mm-hmm. woke up one day and said, oh, let's move some girls across the ocean in a crate, but step by step, you either are explicitly told or read between the lines and see how you got from there to there and how you really wish you could get back. How does that sound? I think that sounds great. I had thought I read all of her books, but I definitely haven't read this one. And I also appreciate what you've described in the plot in terms of the insidious nature of the crime building. I think that is often the case. And also it sounds like it takes place in... America or at least North America? Yes. It's set in New York until he goes off for his honeymoon in Italy, which is a little bit fun and atmospheric. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, as far as crime, you know, if you're going to commit a crime, you might as well do it in an atmospheric setting. So you go back and forth between New York City and Italy. Yeah. So I, th- I actually really like that aspect too, because so many novels that I've read about human trafficking take place kind of between Nepal, India, and Pakistan, which is fine. That is how a lot of the crime takes place. But I think that there might be a misconception that human trafficking only happens in developing countries or super populated countries that are not, you know, highly economic in nature, things like that. So I appreciate that different kind of setting. And I'm interested to see the take on it. Okay, working our way up the squeamish ladder. (laughs) The third one I'm thinking of for you is a YA novel called Trafficked. It's by Kim Purcell. Do you know this one? I do not. At first, I thought you were going to say Traffic by Ellen Hawkins, which I just finished. And how was it? Because these books get confused all the time, as I'm sure you can imagine. (laughs) It was good. I haven't reviewed it yet because I'm still mulling it over. Um, So Ellen Hawkins writes novels in verse. I think that they're really amazing and she accomplishes so much in her verse. So that's so impressive to me. However, uh, yeah, Traffic is a sequel to a book called Tricks. Mm-hmm. And it's about um, teen prostitution, basically, in the US. Did you read the whole thing? Both of them, yes. And I think that the triggers in it make me less likely to recommend them. However, I think they're very well done books, if that makes sense. A book can really do what it set out to do. And it can be an amazing book without being a book for you. Yes. Yes. And it's a lot about runaways and how victims are coerced. I think, yeah, I think that the Ellen Hopkins books are very well done, but it's sort of like recommendation with 
a word of caution. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I have heard of this book, Trafficked by Kim Purcell, but I have not read it. I will say that obviously this is not heartwarming content, but it does have a char- it, it does have a protagonist, a 17-year-old girl. She's from Moldova. So again, not India or Pakistan. Yep. Who is brought to the United States. She thinks she's coming to LA because she's taking a job as a nanny for a Russian family. But that is, mm. as we know, I know that's not what happens. And at first she just works long hours, but it just gets increasingly creepy and then dangerous. And she in line with the singer's gun. She has false papers. She's totally broke. She has zero friends or connections, but she's got to do something because she's, she's in trouble and it's just getting worse. The way this is written, you really root for our 17 year old girl. I mean, of course you hope good things for her, but, but it doesn't always feel like you can really cheer them on. Sometimes it feels like you're just watching like an inevitable disaster unfold before your eyes. And this book falls in the former camp, not the Mm -hmm. inevitable disaster camp. I'm hopeful that this will work for you. Um, But of course, it's hard to read because it's it's about human trafficking. Yeah. And I don't want to give the impression that I enjoy (laughs) these types of stories, but I think they're important to build empathy and get a better sense of the types of stories that are out there because there's not one type of victim and there's not Mm -hmm. one type of you know, mode. I also would love to be able to have more in my back pocket for younger readers, like I said. So I think the middle grade and the young adult books are especially interesting to me. Maybe we should have done this backwards. Maybe we should have started with the, oh, I don't know if I could go there and worked our way back to like, (laughs) yes, I'm downloading it right now. But I do like that even if it's a hard and heavy book that those stories can really stay with us as readers and they can really inspire us to take action because they do not let us go. Yes. Oh, speaking of taking action, can we talk about December? Because I've seen this on the interwebs for years and it don't know people have participated. Would you tell me about it, please? Yes. December is an annual project and campaign to raise awareness about human trafficking. Funds raised through it go on to benefit anti-trafficking organizations. Um, so the project is to wear a dress every day in December and then use that as a gateway to talk to people about the reality of human trafficking in the world. Men do participate. The corollary is to wear a tie or something dressy. Sometimes I say dressy, Ember, for men. <laughs> I have been a dress Ember advocate for since 2014. So 2018 will be my fifth campaign. Wow. Really fun and challenging. But throughout the past four years, I've just learned a lot about the issue of human trafficking. And that makes me more and more motivated to keep learning. It's a real catalyst for me to share the information with people and hopefully not in a very pushy way, but in a way of did you know, and this is why it's important to me. And it's also fun and whimsical, so you don't have to be an expert. It's really about your personal experience and how the issue impacts you. So I've been involved, like I said, since 2014, and I've had a team. I would love anyone to join my team if you're interested. I try to make it really fun and encouraging. What what does it mean to join your team? It means that any funds that you raise go toward our team goal. We set up a Facebook group and I send out weekly emails to encourage everyone and share milestones, share facts that people can talk about, um, basically just be a resource for people to have a good experience and feel equipped 
to go out there and advocate. People make it their own, which I also love that about Dress Number. For a few years, I have worn the same dress every day. And that makes an impact too, because it is pretty hard. Your overdressed author would love that. And also I do too. (laughs) I do have more than one dress, but I wear, I joke that I have three shirts and I just rotate them. Yes. Yes. The most difficult part about the one dress challenge is laundry logistics. Cause it's like when, how do you manage to wash it? Which is the number one question I got all those years. (laughs) Well, at least you have something to talk about. Exactly. It's a gateway. Um, The author of The Locust Effect, Gary Haugen, he says something like, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like (laughs) awareness about human trafficking is not enough to end it, but we can't end human trafficking without awareness. And I love that we're talking about these books that address the topic. And that's such a natural way to talk about, you know, something you might not bring up at the water cooler in conversation, but you would totally talk about the book you finished last night. And I love that you're combining literature with your project. My involvement with the Diverse Books Club has been wonderful in terms of getting recommendations for books like this. When I shared books that I was reading last year on Instagram, like Locus Effect, people gave me great recommendations. So this year in December, our Diverse Books Club theme will be Modern Slavery. So we're going to get into it on the Diverse Books Club. And I cannot wait. Well, I can't wait to see what you all pick. And in the meantime, of the books we talked about today, Tell Me by Joan Bauer, The Middle Grade Selection, The Singer's Gun by Emily St. John Mandel, and Trafficked by Kim Purcell, the YA novel. What do you think you will read next? Well, my library has all of them. So it's a little bit of library roulette, but the middle grade and the young adult books are both on the shelf, whereas the Emily St. John Mandel is not. (laughs) That one's out. So I will read whatever comes in first. It'll be a race of the library holds. If both of them come at the same time, I will probably read the middle grade first. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. Crossing my fingers for you. And Ruthann, thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thank you so much. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Ruth Ann today, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 154, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Make sure you check out Ruth Ann's wonderful Instagram account. I've been following it for years. Follow her there at definitely R-A, that's definitely Ruth Ann, for updates on what she's reading and lots of great info on Dressember. Readers, here's a peek at what we have coming your way next Tuesday. It's another good one. Uh, actually, one I read probably 30 years ago or, or more was one of the, the first books that was, you know, again, not a non-technical book per se. Uh, you know, wasn't heat transfer, wasn't fluid flow that you just sat down and I was just gravitated by it and found out I couldn't, yeah, I, I couldn't put it down. I just kept reading and reading and remember being totally fascinated by it. Have you read this, Ashley? I am not, but I kind of want to now. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't assign this at your place of employment? Yeah, no, no, I do nonprofit work, so absolutely not. (laughs) It's not nonprofit nuclear work? No, not at all. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at What Should I Read Next and at Ann Bogle. 
Readers, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or for a friend. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.